If you will, open your Bibles with me. Good morning to the last paragraph of Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, here, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus comes to a therefore, kind of a summary statement. You know, if we were to reduce Christianity to um, one basic question, I mean, if you could ask just one question about Christianity, what would it be? I think what my question would be, is it real? I mean, is it, is it real? Or, or is Christianity some uh, intangible hope-a-hope-a-hope, wishful thinking, psychological exercise? I mean, are we playing some religious game here and only fooling ourselves? Or is the Christian faith, is Christianity real? There, there's a term philosophers use, epistemology. I know a lot of big words, watermelon, cantaloupe epistemology. What the word actually means is, how do you come to know something? I mean, how do you know you know something is true? And so the word would be, the question would be, what is the epistemology of the Christian faith? How do we know it is true? We do have the science of apologetics, which is the defense of the Christian faith based on the studying of of evidence. If it's a historical evidence, like things like the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ in history, we may argue that. If it's prophetical evidence, then we argue about the fulfilled prophecies of the Old Testament, ancient prophecies fulfilled in Jesus Christ and today. Or if it's philosophical in nature, we usually go along the lines of the different evidences for the existence of God. But when everything is discussed and everything is debated and all the arguments are over, It really comes down to one thing remaining as the greatest evidence that Christianity is true. It's a changed life. It's your changed life. It's my changed life. Something's different about me. And how can anyone justifiably argue against what happens deep within the soul of another human being? There's got to be something basically different about my life. But what is it? I mean, I, 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 where, where am I going to see this proof of the reality of Jesus Christ? I'm not talking about belief itself. I'm talking about my believing. How do I know I am believing? And, and how do I know that what I'm believing is something that is actually real? So I ask myself, self, is there something radically different about you? And I respond, self, I don't know. I'll listen to the message and find out. God calls us a holy people. Not because we're better than anyone else, because we're not. But the word holy means, a holy people, we are set apart. That's what the word means. Saint, set apart. We are designed and set apart for a particular purpose. This set apartness, this, this sense of purpose, this design thing, this reason we exist, apparently is what makes us so radically different. Because of our faith in Christ. I mean, we have these identity questions. Usually they hit us in college. Questions like, you know, who, who am I? And why am I? And where am I going? But you know, those three questions are really answered with really the answer to one question. And that is, what am I here for? What am I for? What is this design 
of being a human being created in the image of God? What, what is this purpose that I'm supposed to have? And the answer is really straightforward in the Scripture. I am created, I am designed in the image of God for the purpose of being a child of God, manifesting the very nature of my Heavenly Father. You see, people don't have a clue what the Creator's like. It's because people, people remain creatures. Creatures do not manifest Creator. They just simply try to appease the Creator, create religions to try to do something to the Creator. But the whole purpose of a father, the Heavenly Father, is to make Himself known. Why do you think in Genesis 1-1, God introduces Himself and goes, Hi, I am. Take a look at what I've created. And I want to be known. And he wants to be known through his own, his own children. That's why we have been justified. We have been made righteous. We've been placed in a right relationship with God. No longer our creator, our heavenly father. And that's why in 2 Corinthians 6, he says, I'll be a father to you. You'll be sons and daughters to me. And as a son and a daughter, you will reflect the very nature to everyone who doesn't have a clue to what their God is really like. This is what I'm here for. As was said in 1 Corinthians 6, you were bought with a price. You're not your own. But the rest of the verse is therefore, glorify God, manifest, demonstrate the nature of your Father. That's what we're all about. And then Jesus summarizes our purpose right here in the last verse of chapter 5. Here he says, therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Right. Anybody get a handle on that? Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is where attitudes about life are born. And this is from actions are given birth. Is there any radical distinction in my life that's some form of, of, of perfect Something I can look at. Forget you. I'm talking about something I can look at in my life that I know is so radically different than I would ever be that I would know something real has changed my heart, changed me. And it has something to do with Jesus Christ and His resurrection and the gospel of Jesus Christ. If my faith is for real, what Jesus is going to say here, you will see it in the most radical way. And the most radical way you'll ever see it will not be in the way you respond to your friends. It will be in the way you respond to your enemies. To your enemies. Look at the law written in verse 43. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now wait a second. Jesus, what he's doing here in chapter 5, he's correcting what the scribes and Pharisees have been doing, twisting the different laws of God so that they would basically say what they wanted said so they could go ahead and do what they said and feel the self-righteousness and feel religious. So they've been twisting the laws of God and they've been adding a little bit, subtracting a little bit. This particular one, they leave out a little and they add a little. See, what are you talking about? Well, the quote here, the law is Leviticus 19, verse 18. And here's what he says in the first phrase. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now wait, that's not what they've been saying here. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. They dropped off two words. 
What happened? Love your neighbor as yourself. Now that in itself would be pretty radical. Philippians chapter 2, Paul says the essence of humility, a change, is I look at the interests of others as more important than my own. I do not just view my own personal interests, but the interests of others as I care for them as much as I care for myself. Now that alone would be pretty radical from everyone else in the world. But they just drop it off as yourself, and rather they add something that's not there. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, from where did this come? They've narrowed the concept of neighbor to basically one of your own kin, at least one of your own race, or somebody of your own religion. In other words, somebody like me. So, anyone else who's not like me would be considered subject as an enemy. Logically, it follows. If I'm loyal... I love my neighbor, people like me, then I will hate my enemy, people who are not like me. This whole thing was used to justify their own racial prejudice. This is why in ancient Rome, they described the Jews living in that day as those who hated humanity. Because the scribes and Pharisees were teaching them to love your own and hate everybody else, declare them your enemy. Now if you go back to Leviticus 19... So turn to Leviticus chapter 19, and let me show you from where they're, they're, they're trying to derive this hate your enemy stuff. The actual, again, the verses, verse 18 of Leviticus 19, Moses says, You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now he goes on in the same chapter. Look at verse 33 and 34. Moses goes on to say, When a stranger resides with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as a native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Remember that. This whole chapter is not about loving your neighbor, hating your enemy. It's all about loving your neighbor, whether they be like you or they aren't like you. So Jesus says, you have heard the twist of this law. He says, but I am going to tell you what God actually says. But I'm saying to you one thing. And if you can get this one thing straight, everything else will probably make sense to you. He says, we love our enemies by praying for them. We love them by praying for them. Now why would I do something like that. Jesus is going to say first to show the world who you are. And second of all, it's to show the world who the Heavenly Father is. Look at the law written on a heart. Verse 44. Jesus says, But I say to you, I say to you, love your enemies and even pray for those who persecute you. Now when Jesus says, love your enemies... He doesn't use the word for affection. doesn't use the word eros. He's not saying, now I want you to have an affection for your enemies. Like they hit you in the mouth and say thank you. And he doesn't use the word here for, for friendship, the word philo. doesn't say, now you've got to like your enemies. And he doesn't use the word for family care, a storge. You know, you know treat your enemies like their family. No, no. He's not saying you have to have affection for your enemies. You've got to like your enemies. You've got to treat them like family. He uses this word agape, which means to recognize 
their worth as created by God, bearing God's image. You see, when the Bible says God is love, remember love is, is a predicate nominative. It describes the subject. It's saying God's love is not just something God does. Love is something God is. He values what He creates no matter how it turns out. And if anyone's ever going to recognize that God values His creation, that made in His own image, He's going to make it known through His own. But much of what He created in His own image, they don't act very well, they sure don't act like it, and they burn you, and they burn each other, but they still contain the very image of God. There's a a, a rabbinic tale of the destruction of the Egyptians in the Red Sea, and remember when the Egyptians finally, Moses gets the people through and closes the, 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 the sea and the Egyptians drown. And the tale runs that the angels began to rejoice. To which God said sorrowfully, the work of my hands have sunk into the sea and you would sing before me? We may be asking, who's my brother? Maybe we ought to be asking, well, who, who, who's my enemy? Well, I guess those in the Middle East that hate us, they're our, our enemies. I, I was raised in the 60s. The Russians were our enemies. I still remember Khrushchev taking his shoe off and banging that, saying, I'm going to bury you. I, I, I remember that people building swimming pools. No, bomb shelters. Some of you remember, are older. We actually, 35 95 you can get a bomb shelter buried right in your backyard. I, bomb shelter. I remember at school, in the mid-60s, they would have these nuclear uh, attack uh, uh, drills. Uh, we would hide under our chairs, tables, and put your hands around your neck. And this would protect you from a nuclear blast. <laughs> and we believed it. The Russians were my enemies. So I went over to Russia and met so many brothers and sisters in Christ who love God in Russia. Now, you can fill in the blank who's your enemies, but, but is he talking about national adversaries here or personal enemies? Who's my enemy? Well, Jesus tells us right here, pray for those who persecute you. Not your country, you. This is personal. Your enemy, by definition, are those who, who create suffering for you, attack you. He says this at the very end of the Beatitudes, verse 11. He says, blessed are you who, uh, when men revile you, they attack you, they mock you, when they persecute you, when they say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. So this is when people burn you. They say things for the purpose of hurting, harming, causing discomfort and suffering. These are the enemies he's talking about. Have you ever been burned by people? Yeah, there's times he's a boy with friends and family like this. I really don't need any enemies. But how do I ever love someone like that who treats me that way? That burns me? Well, that's the point. I, I can't. I'm sorry, Jesus. If you say, okay, I'm supposed to recognize their worth. I'm to love them. Paul even takes it so far in Romans 12 that God can so do a change in my heart that I would actually respond to my enemies by wanting to serve them. If they're thirsty, I'll give them something to drink. If they're hungry, I'll give them something to eat. I'm sorry, that's a little too radical for me. I don't know how I could do that. 
And then someone's going to give us a nice little condescending religious platitude. Like, well, just let the Lord love them through you. Don't you want to just pop some Christians? Right. I'll just let, I'll just let the Lord love them through me. But the truth is that's exactly what's going to happen. But Jesus is going to tell us how it happens. He says you don't have to have an affection for your enemies. You don't have to like them. You don't have to treat them as family. But you are to make a choice to recognize that they are created by God and they bear His image. And here's how you're going to have your heart changed. You're going to pray for them. You're going to pray for those who persecute you. He doesn't say, go and play nice. Go kiss and make up. Let's all get a hug here. Shake hands and, 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 and say you're sorry. He doesn't say any of that stuff. April 9th, 1945. 23 days before the Nazis surrendered, they hanged Dietrich Bonhoeffer a wonderful pastor, a, a phenomenal theologian, and he hanged him with a wire around his neck. And this godly martyr, he actually wrote about this particular text we're talking about, and here's what he said, quote, This is the supreme demand. Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy and stand by his side and plead for God, plead for him to God. Hmm. You know how many times I, I will counsel folks. I'll counsel myself. And uh, they'll say, well, no, I, uh, I know Jesus wants me to do that, but I, I can't do that. The emotional pain's too great. I, I can't, I won't, I won't, I won't forgive that person. I won't do that. And being the most wonderful counselor that I am, <laughs> I'll simply say, let me get this straight. So what you're saying is, I don't care what Jesus says. I don't care what Jesus says. And when I read something like this, I'm thinking, I don't know, God. My burn list is pretty long. I don't know if I can do this. And Jesus says, I'm asking you to surrender. I'm asking you to surrender your will and make a choice. I'm not saying you have to change your heart. I'll change your heart if you're willing to surrender your will and begin to pray, to pray. You know what comes to my mind on this? When I meet Jesus Christ, I'll tell you the last thing I want to hear is, Daryl, why did you call me Lord, Lord, and you did not do what I said? I'm kind of hoping for, well done, faithful servant. I don't want to hear, Daryl, why did you call me Lord, Lord, and you do not do what I say? When it comes to loving my family and my friends, my love comes from my heart. When it comes to loving my enemies and letting God change my heart, it comes from a deep desire to obey Jesus Christ. It is this obedience of praying that the radical thing happens. The absolute not human, non-human, not natural, unnatural, not normal, paranormal, God actually 
changes my heart. He doesn't tell me I need to change my own heart. I can't do that. But he does tell me to do something I can. I can choose to surrender my will to the will of Jesus and obey what he says and pray. Choose to pray for those who persecute me, those who burn me. Spirit of God in me makes it apparently impossible for me to continue to hate someone when I'm praying for them. When I take myself and the person I hate in the presence of God and I'm talking to God about for them. Apparently that's when this radical softening, changing of heart takes place. Look at verse 45. Jesus says, in order, here's the purpose clause, that you may be sons of your Father who was in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends his rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Notice the purpose clause, in order that you may be sons of your Father. This does not make you a child of God. It shows you, you, that you are. Because you have no natural explanation for this radical change of how you respond to your enemies. He says, God, He causes His Son to rise in the good people and the evil people. Why? Because they're created in His image. He causes His reign to fall upon the righteous and the unrighteous. Why? Because they're created in His image. And God so loves the world that He created And the world's never going to know that unless his own will manifest it. Theologians call this common grace. Common grace. What God gives to all human beings for no other reason than they're created in the image of God. He gives them food to eat, pleasures to enjoy, family life to celebrate, and the sun to rise and the rain to fall. And as the Father, this is empirical evidence, how the Father wants those created in his image to be recognized as such, And he wants his own children to do so. Like father, like son. Like heavenly father, like earthly daughter. Common grace. Look at verse 46, 47. Jesus says, For if you love those who who love you, what reward have you? You know, Holly says, Daryl, sometimes you have the depth of a thimble. I, I, I do because, for me, if you like me, I'll like you. I mean, it's really, if, if you like me, I'll like you, which is pretty shallow. And Jesus says here, now, if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax gatherers do the same? Daryl, go work for the IRS here. I'll, I'll be careful. All right, that, this is ancient tax. Keep going, Daryl, dig out of this. And if you greet your brothers only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? The famous theologian John Stott in England wrote this about this passage. Quote, It is not enough for Christians to resemble non-Christians. Our calling is to outstrip them in virtue. If I treat well those who treat me well, there's nothing radical about that at all. There's no way I'm going to know Jesus is real and Christianity is true. It is only in the way I respond to those who burn me, my enemies. Now look at his summary, therefore. He says, now let me just make this simple. Verse 48, therefore, 
You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. There are probably few verses in the Bible more misunderstood than this verse. It appears like he's saying for us to be perfect. That's impossible. So it's a command to do something that's impossible. Unless you're an egomaniac and you already think you're perfect. But why would Jesus, after telling us through the Beatitudes and the entire chapter, all these possible things to do, how to basically be salt and light, how to be faithful to your mate and your spouse, how to go ahead and love and care, and all these possible things, and in the ends, and blows us away with something impossible. That doesn't make sense. What does be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, what does that mean? The word perfect is the Greek word teleos. And if you want to know what a word means, you don't come up with what you were taught or what you think or you make up what you think perfect means. The word is teleos. You take a look to see how is the word used in the same time it was being used by Jesus. Teleos. When a man reached his full-grown stature, he was called teleos. When a student matured in their knowledge and finally mastered their subject, they were called Tilios. Tilios is the form of the noun telos, which simply means the purpose completed. As something's been designed and it is now fulfilling its purpose, the reason it was designed is tilios, is telos. In other words, when a man or a woman realize their purpose, what they're designed to do, and they are doing it, that's tilios. That's perfect. We were designed. Why am I? Where am I going? What am I here for? I am here, created as a creature, to become a child of God. My sins forgiven. The Spirit of God within my heart, giving a desire to please God as my Heavenly Father, to reflect His nature to the world that doesn't have a clue. And the Father of Heaven has common grace. He celebrates those that He's created in His own image by giving them common grace. He expects His sons and daughters to communicate that common grace. And He's told us exactly how it happens. If I will choose to submit my will and just pray. Daryl, just pray. Then you are being perfect. You're doing what you were purposed, designed to do because I will do the radical thing. I will show you how real your faith is. Because I'll actually change your heart. I'll change your heart. That's what verse 45 says. God has hesed. That is, He has a desire for the well-being of everyone He's created. And He wants that communicated from and through His own. That's perfect. Just doing what we were designed to do. His children manifesting His nature. So I ask you, have you ever been burned? I mean, what good ever comes out of being betrayed, hurt, attacked, dismissed as nothing? Is Christianity real? If it's real, then there better be something radically different about us. If we're going to see something radically different about us, it will not be in the way we respond to our friends. It will be in the way we respond to our enemies. We submit our will and we see God change our heart. A couple months ago when I was preparing this and researching this in preparation for the president's class, 
I remember thinking, I don't have a lot of enemies. When you're such a nice guy as I am, you just don't have lots of enemies. Or if you do, you're just ignorant of it. But one particular individual went after me. After my name, my reputation, my conduct. I kept trying to want to make this right. And can't happen. Won't they, versus person won't let it happen. Won't let me talk. And I started getting so angry. I mean, it started to even, started to even consume me. Day didn't go by that I didn't find myself just starting to get frustrated and angry at this person. And then I'm studying this. I said, okay, let's give it a go. And so I began to pray for this person. And within 24 hours, I still hated them. So apparently it's not a 24-hour thing. (laughs) By the end of that week, praying every day, still hated him. But in the second week, I started getting interested. Thoughts just started coming to my mind. How this person suffered. How this person's been hurt. Some of the deep frustration in this dear person's life. And all of a sudden, I found the most remarkable, radical thing happening. My heart began to soften. And I began to care what this person's gone through. Because when people are deeply hurt, they hurt others. And little by little, I found my heart changing. I'm telling you, beloved, this is not normal. This is not natural. This is supernatural. This is paranormal. And this is the command of Christ. The Father wants His nature known. This is what we're for. We are a holy people designed for this purpose. And we are teleos when we are pursuing our designed purpose. So I ask you this. Who's your personal enemy? Who's burned you? Because we're just about to increase your prayer list. And for some of you, it's going to be a long prayer list. So start with the first one. One at a time. Who's burned you? Who's hurt you? Who reviles you? Persecutes you? harms you. Will you submit your will by choice and begin to pray and let God change the heart? And when you see such a radical change in your life, you'll never question if Christianity is true and if your faith is genuine. Or is a response, I don't care what Jesus says. I don't care what Jesus says. He doesn't know my hurt. He doesn't know what I've gone through. 
He doesn't understand. You can have all the excuses, but just be prepared for his question. Why would you call me Lord, Lord, and you do not do what I say? I love being Pastor Emeritus, which is Latin for old man, don't stay around too often. Because that means when I come, I can beat on you. And you don't know my email. (laughs) Heavenly Father, I pray that let this be so. Jesus, this is your command. We have no excuse. It's our choice. Will we trust? Not that we're going to change our hearts. It's too impossible. But we can pray. And you can begin to do a paranormal work in us. It's not for those who've hurt us. It's for us to know that Jesus Christ is alive. And he's alive in me. And he changes in my heart every day. He's touched the deepest part of my soul. And no one, no one can debate that. Let it be so, Jesus. We pray in your name. God's people said, Amen. Walk worthy. You have your homework assignment.